Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Beautiful, wonderful, snowy, but warm, mild winter in Bozeman, Montana. Hope the rest of you are enjoying a mild winter, but we might pay for it this spring and this summer when we don't have any water in our streams and we have an intense fire season, but it's nice to see a winter that's a little easier on the critters compared to what it was last winter. But uh, anyhow, I'm running a couple days late here on account of the holidays. Uh, Family in town, uh, the crew is pretty much on vacation and I've got this thing called the CPA life, which gets pretty busy the end of the year. So I hope you will all grant me one uh, delay here. The fact that this podcast is probably going to drop two or three days later than it normally would. But uh, this one's going to be a Q&A session. We do one of these about every five or six months. We accumulate questions. And then at some point in time, we say, well, Let's go through all these questions and sort them. And I don't know how many we have here. We've got hundreds and hundreds of them. Uh, me and and Matthew have went through, and I don't know if we've done a good job, but we've consolidated enough topics that's going to give us way more bait to chew on than what we can digest over the next period of time that, you want to listen to a podcast anyhow. I I think, but if we covered them all, we'd definitely run out of audience interest before we got to the end of it. So, but this podcast is brought to you by Leupold Optics. Uh, Leupold is just such a great supporter of hunting, of conservation, of public lands, everything we do. Uh, Go to leupold.com and check it out. Their SHOT Show next month is going to, oh man, they're going to be releasing all their new goodies for the year. So I always a lot of good news about that. OrionCoolers.com. Uh, go out to Orion Coolers and you will find the best coolers I know of. Uh, OrionCoolers.com. Use promo code Randy. And uh, I, I wish we were done playing phone tag so I could confirm what the new promo code incentive is. But it's going to be pretty cool. Uh, so by the time you hear this podcast and you go out there and you use promo code Randy, hopefully it shows up in your, your uh, shopping cart. Uh, OrionCoolers.com, promo code Randy. Onyx Maps, uh, go to onyxmaps.com, use promo code Randy and save 20% on all of their smartphone, all their app type products. And in addition to that, they're just so good at supporting conservation. You look at every conservation group I know of, Onyx Maps is supporting them in very, very big ways. So onxmaps.com, I think one of the questions we sorted here today actually has to do with Onyx and GPSs and navigation and everything else. Uh, so use promo code Randy and save 20%. And I know another one of the, the questions that we have here uh, revolves around uh, Wyoming elk applications and uh, gohunt.com you hear us talk about the insider use the insider at gohunt and it's going to have so much information right at your fingertips you're going to understand why it's such an important part of everything that we do 
when it comes to applying for tags, researching units, knowing what our short-term and long-term strategy is for every species in every state. And if you go out there and sign up for the Insider with all of its new features, uh, we're going to be talking about those new features. We're going to do a podcast. I think next week it's it's going to be a podcast that isn't even part of our normal normal schedule. I just got to see the beta link uh, or the beta version of the new Insider, and it's really cool. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do not a full-length podcast, probably going to be a shorter than normal podcast, but we're going to do one about the Insider and all of the states and the deadlines because we want you to go elk hunting every year. And that's what we use the Insider for, to make sure that you and us, everyone we know, understands how they could go elk hunting every year. Use promo code Randy when you go out there to sign up for the Insider and they'll give you $50 of free mad money, store credit in their gear shop. Gohunt.com, Insider, promo code Randy, get $50 added to your account right away. So with that... uh, is this going to be an interview? Am I going to be like getting interrogated, Matthew? Is, it, is, is that what it's going to be? Uh, I don't think it's going to be an interrogation. No? Um, I'll, I will definitely ask the initial questions and then we can sit around and discuss it. Well, why don't, why don't I ask the questions and you answer them? Uh, we can try that if you really want to. I'm not sure how well that's going to work. <laughs> uh, well... I since most of these emails are addressed to me, I guess the the more practical way to do it is to probably have you ask the questions. You've been involved in this stuff since forever. So you probably if you raise your eyebrows because the audience can't see this. So if you give me some body language that hey idiot, you just skipped something or you said something wrong, use hand signals or something to let me know that I screwed it up. All right. So, and you, your specialty is debate though. Weren't you, <laughs> weren't you on the debate team at college? Uh, a little bit. A little bit. A huh? little bit. So is a debate in an interview similar or is it? Is Not it, really. I mean, the no. debate that we did was more or less just arguing. <laughs> well, you didn't even argue that much. You just no. stood up and made your case and then occasionally got to cross-examine the other person. Really? Yeah. Well, that sounds like a very useful skill in marriage. I, mm-hmm. I completely flunked debate. I did not take debate in high school. In college, I took a year of business and professional speaking, but that has nothing to do with defending your case and cross-examining. And that's why I lose all the debates at home. Um. I don't know if cross-examining really has a place in in debate in personal relationships, but <laughs> <laughs> definitely in debate. <laughs> okay, we're just gonna leave that one where yeah, it is. So, so let's, uh, let's for, just for the audience' sake, you, you're gonna in a, you you've you have the questions in front of you, and I'm gonna try my best to expand upon the points being asked. Right? Yep. That sounds right. about right. We'll see how many of these we get through. Uh, it's a wide variety. I don't know. How, how are we going to sew them all together? Because it a lot of them are disconnected. Yeah, we're just going to have a little disjointed 
All right. Q&A session, I guess. All right. So, folks, if we don't get to one of the emails that you sent in, we apologize, but it's a huge stack of them uh, between emails. This has been building up for over a year now, so is that how long is quite it's long. been? It's well, over a year? The first one that I see is April, but I'm pretty sure we started this way, way before that. So, Oh, man. All right. Well, I guess we're off and running then. We'll, yeah. we'll try to clean out. So I guess then the question is, if we do this, can we clean out the folder that says questions? Or do we just clean out the ones we've answered? Uh, probably just the ones we've answered. I'm probably just going to pick ones at random that seem pretty good, and we'll go from there. <laughs> we haven't planned this out real well, everyone. Uh, no. We, I apologize again that it's been such a frantic period for me. Uh, December, I wouldn't want to work for... for working for me in December has got to be chaotic because I've got... I try to be, you know, the normal holiday guy. I've got all my continuing education that I got to do to keep my CPA license. And if I don't keep the CPA license, this operation is probably going wheels up because what pays the bills for me is being a CPA. Uh, And then you got year-end planning and you got all the things that you put on hold while you've been on the road for four months. So, yeah. No wonder the staff all decided they're going to head out for the holidays, mm-hmm. get away from me for a while. Yeah. So that's really what it is. That's probably it. All, all right. right. Let's, let's actually start this, shall okay. we? Okay. Yes, shall we? All right. Um, so give us a little background and some initial thoughts on the Grizzly delisting issue that's been coming up periodically. Yeah. So that came up this week because. And I don't know how far back we want to go in this. Uh, Quick summary. What is what has happened in the last year as far as like okay. major, major events? And then what does that mean going forward? Okay. So I can't go into the... No, don't my, go into the full story. You don't want my 20-year history of being no. involved in grizzly bear planning. No. Okay. So base, baseline grizzly bears are on the endangered, endangered species. Endangered species list. Yes. All right. So... All of you know, grizzly bears are on the endangered species list. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for years has been saying these bears are recovered in the greater Yellowstone area. So understand there's, I think, five distinct population segments that are treated, each are treated separately. So we got the greater Yellowstone population. We have the northern continental divide population up in the Bob Marshall Glacier National Park area. We have the Cabinet Yak, which is just west of there. And then we have the northern Cascades population in northern, kind of north central, north or more western central Washington. And then we have the population that doesn't exist. I think it's the Bitterroot Selway population that is really not a population. Uh, There's no bears there other than the occasional one that strays through. And for some reason, I feel like I'm missing a population segment. Anyhow, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service treats each of these as distinct populations and has a different management plan and assessment for each population. So the greater Yellowstone population that we're talking about that's been the subject of all this litigation for years, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been 
issuing their uh, finding, I guess I'll call it, for years. Going back, I think the first time they said the bears are recovered and should be delisted was seven or eight years ago. And they got sued. Okay, they go to court, they lose, some judge says, no, you forgot this little piece. All right, they solve that. They provide the science and the study to that. Then they hand it over to state control again and they get sued. This keeps going on back and forth. So I give that background because a lot of people say, oh, the damn feds. Understand people that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is who is telling us that the bears are recovered. The bears should be in state control. But every time they do that, the litigators sue them. So this is not the federal government who is trying to keep us from managing grizzly bears. If it wasn't for the judges that they find, we would have management authority over these grizzly bears. So the greater Yellowstone population affects Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. The majority of it's in Wyoming. And as you all know, last September, uh, or this September, it's, well, this podcast will air in early January of 19. September of 18, there was a ruling issued by a federal judge in Missoula, Montana, that said, you know what? You can't do these hunting seasons because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service did something that I think was maybe incomplete or doesn't address all the issues in the way they treated these as distinct population segments. And therefore, you're back to the drawing board. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had until, I believe, Tuesday the 26th to decide whether or not they would appeal that decision by this federal judge in Montana. And they did decide to appeal that decision. And the, a lot of people were saying, well, why don't the states do it? Why don't, the, you know, the, the, why, why don't all these conservation groups appeal it? Well, if you understand law, the only person slash group who could appeal was the group in the suit to start with, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So they decided they're going to go and appeal this, this finding. So it's going to go to a higher court. Um, and I'm sure the states, I already read that Wyoming and Montana have joined as, as uh, supporters. Uh, there's a term for it. It slips in my mind. Uh, anyhow, there's some attorneys listening, I'm sure, who are like, Randy, you're hacking it up here. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, that's where we're at right now, Matthew. The, the, it doesn't, you know, one of the things I always want to add to this is a lot of people think that the Endangered Species Act is about hunting the species. It's not that at all. The Endangered Species Act says this population is recovered and their long-term viability is no longer threatened or endangered. And then the federal government hands the management off to the state that that species lives in. And then it's up to that state to manage them in a way that keeps them from getting, quote unquote, relisted. In other words, put back on the list. And the states are allowed to do whatever 
is, is their management strategy. You know, in this recent period here, Wyoming and Idaho, we're going to have hunting seasons, Montana said, no, we're going to wait a year. So, and we all know that's what brought the lawsuits was the fact that we are going to hunt them. So as much as the ESA is about recovering species and not about, oh, now we can hunt them, it's also not about, oh, it should be used as a tool to prevent hunting them. It's, we all know that that is part of the motivation that drives them, but anyhow, is, does that answer? That's still a pretty long-winded answer, Matthew, but... Yeah. No, I, I think that that's a... A good summary of what's going on. And so what are some of the time frames for next steps, the appeal, the decision? <laughs> that's, that's what nobody knows. Uh, these appeals, sometimes they happen really fast and sometimes they take forever. And so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is going to appeal it and provide their evidence as to why they think the current ruling is incorrect. Now, if they lose there in appeal, then they're, they're going to be at another crossroads of, okay, do we appeal to a higher level, which I think that'd be their last chance for appeal, or do we go back to the drawing board and do what the courts are saying? Uh, we're, you're missing this, or you're not thinking about that, or you're wrong and blah, blah, blah. And I know everybody listening is pulling their hair out saying, what the hell does a judge with maybe a undergraduate degree in history and a graduate degree in law know about wildlife science? The answer to that is nothing. Zero. They, don't, they, they really don't know anything. But they are, the Endangered Species Act is a law, a federal law passed, I believe, in 1972, if I remember right, by President Nixon. Um, so what the judge does know is how the law gets applied. So really, he or she, whoever that judge is, is saying that we believe you have not applied the law correctly based on what you've submitted. So the answer, Matthew, is nobody really knows what the next step is. But you don't need to worry about getting your application in for a grizzly bear hunt anytime soon. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, next question. Uh, tell us a little more about this podcast you alluded to with Go Hunt. Oh, yeah. So a bunch of people know that the Wyoming applications for elk are non-resident, at least for 2019, it's from January 1st to January 31st. 2020, it sounds like Wyoming is going to move that non-resident elk application period to the May 31st deadline instead of the January 31st deadline. Anyhow, a whole bunch of people have been asking me, you know, what should I apply? How should I do what? Go hunt has just come out with a brand new upgrade. I don't know when they're going to release it. I believe they're going to release it sometime in the first week of January. But seeing the beta site, uh, there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there. And I want people to understand that Wyoming is one of those states where you could very easily hunt Wyoming close to every year if you're willing to hunt one of the general units. And the, the new system will make it easier for you. to. It, it'll illustrate better, make it easier to use to see that, wow, yeah, I could go do that every year. And Wyoming has 
I, I would say as good as any state, better than most states, the mix of opportunity and quality and access to public lands. Uh, I, I would, my number one state is just about always Arizona because I'm a big fan of their late rifle hunts. And a lot of people don't want to do the late rifle hunts because they want to hold out for an Arizona archery hunt and have great big bulls bugling in their face. And I get that, but you're only going to get to do that about once, maybe twice in your life. The late seasons in Arizona, you can do that multiple times in your life. So right after that, I would say Wyoming for the non-resident is, is really, really good. And since Wyoming is the first one out of the shoot, we decided that we're going to do a, a short podcast. I would bet it's going to be 40 to 50 minutes at the most about Wyoming and about how the new Go Hunt Insider is working and helping out for all the, the stuff you need in Wyoming. And again, if you go out there, use promo code Randy and get $50 of free store credit. Kind of the obliga- obligatory help us pay our bills kind of pitch there, right? Yeah. Are you going to do any sort of um, demo or anything for the new system to help people learn what's new in it and what's going on. That's a good idea. You mean like a a YouTube kind of video? Huh. Never thought about that. See, that's where I've been doing this so long that I take so much for granted. And then I hang out with younger guys like you and the rest of the crew, and you guys look at it way differently. And you come up with ideas of, you know, you might want to do a YouTube video on this. If you want to get really fancy on it, you could do a a live stream video where people can watch it like on launch day of the new platform. <laughs> but I'm not going to promise that. I am not going to do that. But no, maybe, well, our Elk Talk Live that we try to do on Wednesday nights, we'll get back on schedule. Once I get off the road, I got a bunch of trade shows. We'll get back to doing that before the Wyoming deadline of January 31st. So we'll go over it then. Hmm. Like, I don't have enough to do. Thanks for throwing that idea in the mix. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Anytime. But anyhow, that's uh, a lot of people have asked. And I guess that's a a long-winded way of saying there's more to come as it relates to Wyoming and the Go Hunt Insider. Cool. Um, So somewhat related to that, at least more related than grizzly bears and Go Hunt, is uh, why don't we give away unit numbers that we hunt in? Uh, that's very related to Wyoming because you, your elk hunt that we did just before Thanksgiving was a big hit out on YouTube. And the most common question is what unit is it? Well, we don't give away units. We might give away a general idea of, okay, we're in, I mean, we've talked since... I've started, I hunted Southwest Montana the first time in 1993 and we go over there uh, some years and we hunt deer and we tell people we're in Southeast Montana or a lot of our antelope hunts will say we're in central Wyoming or in Arizona, our elk hunts will say we're in Northern Arizona, but we never give unit numbers and I get a lot of flack over that. In fact, I've had people say, I'm calling your sponsors because you won't tell me what unit that was. That's what you get paid to do. Well, first of all, I've never taken a paycheck out of this operation, so I don't know that I'm quote unquote getting paid to do it. Uh, But we 
the, the whole premise of doing this stuff on your own is doing your own research. And a lot of people do their research by just reading internet forums or watching, maybe they just watch TV shows and they try to see recognizable places and say, oh, I know where he was. And then every place we go when this stuff pops up, like there's an entire thread about your hunt out on a, out on a website about where were they, where were they? And some guys know where we were. And so they've went out and said, yeah, they were in this unit. And I just don't even chime in on those ones. It's, you know, so our policy is we are not going to say it in the episode. We're not going to say it on our hunt talk forum, but people are smart and people figure stuff out. We, we have time where people see us at a gas station or see us on the road or whatever. And so they tell the world where we're at. Um, and it's kind of a damned if I do, damned if I don't. Because if I were to tell people where we go, I would really get in trouble. Uh, not in trouble, but I'd catch even more heat than I already do. Uh, you already get in trouble with people who claim that you've ruined their favorite hunting spot. Oh, I get that all the time. And, and the funny part of it, it used to bother me, and it still kind of bothers me when people say that because it's like, dang, I, you know, I'm not here trying to ruin anyone's spot. And most of the places we go, their spots are a couple million acres in that unit or that region, and they still call it their spot. Um, I get that. I understand that people feel that, hey, I've been hunting here all my life. Why should it show up on TV? Well, usually... The magazines have been talking about it for, for way longer than we might have been doing our platforms. Uh, the other part of it is everyone, how many times do you read or hear, you know, I get tired of all those guided exclusive estate private land hunts. But yet when a public land show comes along, uh, everyone loves it until that public land operation shows up in a place near where they hunt. So I I don't know the the way around it. Yeah. Other I'm, than uh, I mean, I guess the point I'm trying to get at is yeah, there are both sides to it. We've taken a stand that we try to protect those spots as much as we can, but right. sometimes the word gets out. Right. And the other part of it is we expect people to do their own homework. You know, part of, that's why we do so much about planning, about e-scouting, cyber scouting, desk scouting, whatever you want to call it, doing your own research, all that stuff. If we were to just say, oh yeah, here's where to go, this is where it is, that wouldn't really, I, it just doesn't seem like that would be in the spirit of the on your own, do it yourself sort of notion that we our platforms are built around so i don't know if that answers the the questions that kind of came in that that group that that formulated your interview question here but it the point is yeah people are going to know we're in this general area sometimes like they'll see a landmark or whatever you still got to go there you still got to do your scouting a lot of times it's a limited entry tag for non-residents in just about every place we go 
the non-resident numbers are limited. Um, and so what do you do? I, either we quit doing the show and the content or we do it on private land so that people who do get upset about it aren't upset anymore. But we're not going to do either of those things. So we'll just continue our strategy of trying to be discreet, trying to tell people, hey, figure it out. You know, if Nevada, you remember how Nevada used to list everybody's draw results on a big list? Yep. Everybody knew where I was applying in Nevada because even if you were unsuccessful, it said what unit was your first choice. And if you drew, everyone knew what unit we were in in Nevada. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. There's, there's nothing you can do about it. So I, I hope people understand that we try our best to, to be discreet uh, out of respect for other people who apply for those units and out of other people who hunt those units. And, you know, I, I'd say I get more heat about Southeast Montana because we've hunted turkeys there once, we've hunted elk there once, we've hunted deer there three times. Uh, didn't hunt there this year because I had a limited entry mule deer tag in Montana uh, where I could only hunt mule deer in one area that, in the unit I had the tag for. Uh, and, you know, it's I think it's 14 million acres in southeast Montana. And people are like, you're, you're ruining my spot. It's like, really? There's seven, Montana's the number, the fourth largest state in the unit, it's, or in the nation. It's broken into seven regions. And we tell people we're in region seven, which I think is, for some reason, I think it's 14 million acres. Um, the number of non residents is capped. So it's not like because we've talked about it or we've hunted there that there's an unlimited number of non residents. But oh well. I, I get it that people who hunt there are frustrated that we're over there. And it, <laughs> the other part about Southeast Montana is you're not going to go there and shoot whopper bucks. You're going to see a lot of deer, but it's not uh, some place where you like some of the places, Wyoming, Colorado, Idaho, Utah, Nevada. It's, you're just not going to see that kind of deer. Um, so, I, I don't know how to solve that. And the, the same, you know, I think we've done over-the-counter elk four or five times in Colorado. And people will email me, why did you show that gas station? Now everybody knows where you're at. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I don't have the answer that's probably going to make everybody happy. But it's not like we are out there without considering this stuff. It's always in our mind. So, okay. Do you so, think, does that? Yeah. I, I was just going to say, now we get to talk about point creep since we're kind of on the topic already. <laughs> are you, are you a point creep? Um, I, I don't think I am a point creep. Do you want to <laughs> give a quick overview of what point creep actually is? And yeah. Can talk so, about it? Yeah. So point creep is that for years and years, I always thought I was going to draw my Colorado elk tag. Okay. This year, I think I'm going to draw because I've got 10 points and last year it took 10 points. All right. I apply and now I find out it took 11 or 12 points. Point creep is 
people who have just been buying points, finally they see that, hey, now I could probably draw the tag and they jump in and, and they have more points than you. So it pushes the number of points it takes one or two points higher every year and you can never catch up to it. That's what point creep is. Or even just if a unit starts out with 200 people applying and you know, you're one point behind the 200, they right. just keep applying every year as they keep building and it's hard for you to eventually catch up. Right. So Yeah, I mean, so a lot of the places, you're never going to plow through the number of people ahead of you, at least if you're my age. So that's what point creep is. And yeah, it is getting worse uh, every year. There, there's two reasons it gets worse. More applicants and in a lot of cases, fewer tags. So for me, I always say, I don't want to discourage people from wanting to hunt. You know, the more hunters we have, the better in the long run. So how do we put more animals on the mountain or more elk in the hills or whatever the species might be? And that goes back to my CPA world where I've always said there's scarcity thinkers and there's abundance thinkers. Scarcity thinkers say, how do I take this and keep it for myself? Abundance thinkers say, how do we make the pie bigger rather than fight over a smaller pie? Um, so when it comes to wildlife and wildlife populations, I try to think, how do we get more opportunity? And that's one way to combat point creep. But I don't know that we'll ever get rid of it. Well, the second half of that question was, how do I avoid it? <laughs> uh, and I think you just don't. I think it's just a nature of the system right now that right. point creep is more or less just going to be there. It's entrenched in how the system is set up. Yeah, it is. The, the, point, the point systems, if, if you think about not having a point system means every year everyone has the same chance, right? As quick as you have any type of point system... You are saying, I'm going to give benefit to somebody else, to some category of people, either those who have not drawn a tag or whatever. As quick as you interject something other than just a random draw every year with no preference or anything given to anyone, you, you, as quick as you do that, you're giving someone an advantage that comes at the disadvantage of somebody else because there's only X pool of tags. So to give people with more bonus points or more preference points advantage, you're saying the new people coming into the system that you're going to be at the disadvantage. And whether that's right or wrong, I'm not here to say. I'm just saying that all of these schemes are designed in some way, shape, or form to benefit somebody. Mostly old gray-haired guys like me who've been doing it for a long time. So then what are some of the states or systems that are more friendly to the newer applicants? Because not everyone right. is a pure, you know, whoever has the most points gets the tag. Right. Some of them are still random draws to some degree. Right. Idaho and New Mexico do not have a point system, nor does Alaska. And for residents, Wyoming does not have a resident point system for elk, deer, and antelope. So... Uh, those states, I've been applying in Idaho for 20-some years. I've drawn one deer tag in 20-some years, and it was a pretty marginal deer tag. 
the new person who might be listening can come to Idaho and apply in 2019 and they have the same exact odds that I do. So same in New Mexico. Because there's no point system, everybody's at the same same place. All right. The, <clears throat> one of the ways I avoid point creep or try to battle it, whatever term you want to say, or let point creep happen to the other guy, not to me, is I apply in the lower demand units. There's a few places where, all right, I've got 20 sheep points in Arizona or Nevada or Montana, whatever the maximum is in Montana. Well, yeah, when you're that far down the path, you're going to apply for the very hard to draw units and you're going to combat point creep or at least reduction in the percent each year. The the uh, Your odds you think should get better every year, but because there's more applicants or maybe fewer tags, you don't make a lot of progress. But a lot of the other species, elk, deer, antelope, uh, I apply in those mid-tier units. And so I let everybody else fight over the, we call them glory units. Have you ever heard the Bruce Springsteen song, uh, Glory Days? Oh, yeah. And so when we were in Arizona two years ago, I started singing to the tune Glory Days, Glory Tags. And I had this whole set of lyrics about how stupid it was to just bank your hunting opportunity on glory tags. And for me, the place I hunt antelope in Wyoming takes two points. And people are like, how do you get to hunt Wyoming every other year? Well, I'm not applying for the premium units. How do you get to hunt, you know, Nevada deer every third year. Well, you get five choices. My fifth choice is always some easy archery hunt that nobody wants. So yeah, maybe once in a while, one of my other four pop up in Nevada, but usually I'm going hunting on my sort of undesired tag. So that's one way to combat it. And it it's not always the reason that these aren't quality hunts. Usually the reason is it's got some access issues. And I, I would say I am the Charlie Daniels of the access issue. Uh, you know, what's the old country music song? He's the Charlie Daniels of the torque wrench. His name is Earl. And anyhow, I think it's like a Joe Diffie song. That's where the Charlie Daniels of the GPS comes in. I, I'm really handy with a GPS. Now watch it. I said that next year I'll do something stupid and I'll, I'll leave the truck thinking I'm somewhere else and I'll get busted for accidental trespass or something. I, let's hope not. <laughs> let's hope not. That would be tragic. Um, anyhow, the, so and many, go hunt and Onyx have just rescinded their sponsorship. There you go. <laughs> Everyone has. Yeah. <laughs> These platforms are going down the tube. Uh, but that's one way that I I am not, I don't, sub, I guess it's always there to some degree. The glory tags and the units with tons and tons of public land where you don't have to worry about access at all, those are the units that have the greatest point creep problems. If the, the more you start getting to the units that have some public private complications where you got to be pretty handy with your on X system, 
those units are easier to draw. You don't see big jumps in point numbers each year. Um, so, and the other thing, this is the part that cracks me up is how many people don't look at the state access programs in these tougher to draw units. Uh, Wyoming, I don't know how many times I've hunted their walk-in hunting areas. There's a, no, I'm not going to say that because everyone will be applying for antelope there. <laughs> I was just going to lay out how you can hunt antelope just about every year and talk about their walk-in hunting areas. Uh, we'll stop right there. Yeah. The point is being made, I guess. Right. And a lot of states also have general, just unrestricted tags as well, right? right. Yeah. I mean, Idaho, over-the-counter tags, yeah, they're... You know, they're not super high demand, but you can go there every year. Montana, if you're a non-resident, our elk deer combo draw rate is 80 to 90% every year. So those are the places that I look for. And and so earlier I was using the Arizona late rifle elk hunts. There's not a lot of point creep in there. You've if you've had between five and seven points for the last seven or eight years, that's what it's taken between five to seven points to be guaranteed 100% draw on some of those late rifle elk hunts. And I get that everyone says, no, I want an early rifle tag there. I want an early muzzleloader tag, or I want the archery tag there. I get it. I understand. You know, maybe Arizona's your swing for the fences state, but expect a lot of point creep. So so basically what this comes down to is the units that, that have lots of trophy potential yep. and may or may not um, have a bunch of fairly easily accessible land or at least moderate difficulty at best right. are the ones that are really hard to draw. Exactly. The ones that either have more difficult access or maybe don't have quite the trophy potential or easier to draw. And the ones where, you know, populations are low and, you know, access might be difficult. Well, those might be the general. <laughs> those are the ones that you, you'd like in Nevada. I can draw that archery tag every year because uh, the deer densities are super, super low. Um, or you can draw Wyoming nor- in the northeast corner of Wyoming. You can draw pronghorn every year. Why? Because access is so hard. So to your point, either trophy potential or access, those are two things that when you get over to that end of the spectrum, you really don't have to worry about point creep. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm a point creep though. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, uh, I contribute to it. We just keep applying me for hard units because I can only do a limited number of hunts a year. Right. So I'm yeah. just adding to the point creep myself. Yeah, and so this is this is one that I, I've been hammering this now for a couple of years because I thought everybody knew it. But when you were 10 years old or however old you were when you passed Hunter Ed here in Montana, I, I started applying you in Arizona for points because I could buy your non-resident youth hunting license for five bucks. And then what, back then, I think the application fee was another five bucks. Now I think the, the application fee is 15 bucks or something. Any of you listening who have a child in your house who is 10 years old, I think that's the age you can start applying in Arizona. If you have a youth age 10 or older and you are not building points in Arizona, 
quit listening to my podcast. It's that, it's just that much of a no brainer. Or go do some applications. Yeah. Keep listening. Go do applications. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, I'm being tongue in cheek when I say quit listening to our podcast. But no, it's just stuff like that where you say you're contributing to point creep. Yeah, by the time you got out of high school, you already had enough points to be guaranteed a late season elk hunt in northern Arizona. And now you're sitting, I think, on... 17 or 18 deer points <laughs> and the same number of sheep and antelope points in your what 28 yep yeah so uh th- those are other ways to combat it is to get a head start on it and i know some people are going to say look i'm 35 i just found out about this whole western point gig well i I'll, the only answer i have to that is if you wait until next year to start you're going to be one point further behind I mean, like I said, the entire system is set up to perpetuate the point creep. Yeah. So by by participating in it, you are contributing. You are contributing to the point creep. Yeah. And so it's really just taking a look and seeing what do what's my time frame for wanting to go hunting and what's my standard for what I want to go chase. Right. There are some some states where if you applied to the trophy units starting at age 35 we'll say like you were saying you would probably just never draw the tag yeah no you're exactly right i i look at montana i i'm at the maximum level of points for moose and sheep and i'm two below maximum for goat when you say maximum do you mean that's the highest number that is that you possible can, to have yeah, because but, that's but, all the longer it's been in existence. Exactly. I think this year going into it, it'll be 17. But they're not capped at like 20 or something, right? No, you're not. So yeah, good. glad you brought that up because in Montana, we started our point system for moose, goat, and sheep, I think in 2001, I think. Uh, anyhow, right uh, frame, so yeah. no one ha- can have more than, I think, 17 points right now. That When people say they're at maximum points, that means they've been in the system since it started, is, is what they mean. Right, but so. maximum points isn't structurally set at like, five or ten no 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 not at all so yeah i <laughs> we get talking this stuff and i just you know it's jargon that i throw out there and i forget that you know there's a lot of people who don't spend their spare minutes worrying and researching this stuff so but yeah your point is or the point is that point creep will always be there so how do you set your sights accordingly yeah and unless something drastic happens, like significantly more animal numbers are allocated to be hunted or there's a huge drop in applicants, it's just going to be there. Right. So. Yeah. No, one, Montana used to, so the, the little side note, in the 70s and eight, early 80s, Montana did have a preference point system for moose, goat, and sheep. And then they got rid of it. So you had all these people who were invested in this system. And then they said, we're getting rid of it. I wasn't living here at the time. I, I didn't move here till 27 years ago. Well, we didn't move here until 27 years ago. Uh, but boy, you still hear some old timers. Yeah, those blankety blanks, they're just going to jerk the rug out of you on that. 
that's the only state I've ever heard of that's kind of jerked the rug out of people yeah. on point system. I mean, it's this is probably bad phrasing, but it's almost like a Ponzi scheme in a way. It is. You just keep building the layers and the layers, but at right. some point it becomes unsustainable to continue with. Right. So. Yeah. And does it, uh, in Montana, does it do any good for me to have maximum points for sheep when 10,000 other applicants have maximum points for sheep? Mm-hmm. No, not really. So, yeah. Uh, what else do we have here? Let's talk about our Amazon episodes real quick. Yeah. Sidebar. Sidebar. All right. Amazon. Yeah. Those of you who get Amazon Prime, you may or may not know that you get, what's it called? Video Direct Prime? Uh, it's just Amazon Prime Video, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, the cha- the our platform, Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg, Leupold's Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg, is out there. If you're a Prime subscriber, you get to watch it for free for as long as you want. You know, and... Amazon pays us a small fee for every hour that gets watched. So we hope you're out there on Amazon watching it because last week, four new episodes just went live, right? And we got two more submitted that should go live any day. And then Marcus just put up the Utah archery uh, mule deer film. That should go live in another week or so. So So there's a lot out there. Easy way to find it is just to... Go to Amazon and search for Randy Newberg, and it should bring it up. Oh, does it? It should. Okay, cool. At least last time I checked. It <laughs> well, you're in charge of that platform, yeah. so you would know better than anyone. No. So yeah, go watch it, folks. We're uh, I, we're we're having the debate. I don't know if people want to weigh in, but the debate last in 2018 we trickled them at, out right we got two done we'd make them live we got two more edited we'd make them live blah 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 i'm curious if people would rather have the whole season ready at one time or if they want us to trickle them out again i don't know maybe they don't care maybe i'd be curious to see i i have an opinion but i will not date it <laughs> for fear of uh tainting In, the opinions that people give us so. okay well we'll wait and see what they tell us yeah that sounds good uh let's talk about gps's or using a smartphone for figuring out where you are in the unit and access and all that all right so this is very on x intensive and we get so many questions about what do you do with your OnX smartphone app when you don't have service? Well, I think now most people are understanding that you, before you go out, you go offline and you download the maps. To your so, phone. To your phone. It's just an option in the app, right? Right. Yeah. So you, you click, uh, I think it's called the off-grid. I, I, I should look. I, I'm, I'm sure the folks over at OnX are like Randy, you knucklehead. All I, I it's the second tab over. I know that. Uh, Matthew's going to keep pull, talking. Matthew's going to pull it up, up on his phone here. Um, so what you do is you save the map on your phone, and then when you're out there, when you're in airplane mode, you well not when put your phone in airplane mode so it doesn't eat up your battery trying to search for service all the time. What's it called? Off-grid? Off-grid. Off-grid, yeah. And you save new map. Right, and click save new map, 
And then you get to say, you'll put your cursor all right here and it'll say, do you want it to be five miles by five miles, 10 miles by 10 miles? Or, and then there's one great big one. That, so the, the smaller the area you're looking at, the higher the resolution. So the beauty of it is that you get not just a surface map that shows land ownership, but you get all the aerials. Uh, it is unbelievably beneficial to have all those aerials. So my answer to the question now is not even, it, it's not even worth your time. Do not go and buy a GPS. Just use your smartphone and get the app from OnX. And then people say, well, I see you carrying your old traditional GPS sometimes. And that is because it's often a unit we've hunted before. And I've been too lazy to download my tracks and my waypoints from that GPS to my OnX system. And I, now I know that the guys over at OnX are like, Randy, if that's... Stop talking yeah, right now. If that's what's, <laughs> what's been causing you to carry that extra weight around, we'll send somebody to your office to do that download for you. So, uh, yeah, it's a game changer for us. Uh, Marcus and Michael and Dan, when we're out in the field, they don't have, they don't own a GPS. They just look at me like, why do you carry that little, I'm like the little kid that needs his safety blanket or his pacifier or whatever to, to be comfortable. Um, and then the other part that's so funny is people on our YouTube content, they'll comment, oh, you guys just are out there surfing the, the internet or doing Facebook posts or whatever. No. Or, that happens too sometimes. Oh, no, it does. But most of the time what we're doing is we're looking at the aerial views on our OnX system. So that's, does that answer the question of? Yeah. So the, the, the answer is don't go buy a GPS. Just, uh, just use your OnX yeah. on your smartphone. Go to onxmaps.com, use promo code Randy and save 20% on the app and you're going to be set for life. Um, and then how do you keep your phone at uh, the phone battery, basically? How do you keep it going oh, yeah, we for long periods of time? Right, we carry those charging packs with us. The, the little one, I can get about four or five recharges of my phone on one of those. Marcus, he carries one, but he's charging camera batteries. He's charging GoPros, everything while we're walking around. So he carries this bigger one that I'd say is a foot long by three inches wide by an inch thick. I bet you that thing weighs two to three pounds. That's all it weighs? I was going to say. I don't know. Maybe more. Than that. Maybe more but... Uh, so that's what we use. We use those little, I can't even remember who makes them. I think I got a new one from OnX. They sent me one for Christmas, Jackery. Does that sound right? I don't know. They, I have another one they'd sent me by Mophie. Uh, anyhow, they, they, you can find them anywhere. So does that? Yeah, that, uh, that'll work. work. Okay. Um, so here's one that, I kind of want to discuss a little bit, even though it's not exactly a question. Okay. Um, so it's, I want to learn to hunt, but everyone who wants to take me, I don't trust. And everyone I trust doesn't want to take me. Recommendations. Wow. That's the challenge we, I, I think as the hunting world, that's a challenge we face. How do we bring new people into it when well, there's this level, this trust issue of, well... I want to help this person learn to hunt, but 
are they going to go tell their three buddies what spot we went to? Or are they, um, next time I show up, are they going to be sitting in my duck blind? Or am I going to see their truck parked there and they've put a tree stand up? Or, so, uh, so at that's, least that's a hard one. For, for my perspective on this, there are a bunch of different parts in this somewhat simple seeming question. Yeah. Um, the first is that as a group, um, if we want this to be a sport that continues, uh, we're going to have to start passing it on and yep. not just taking your kids hunting. Like if you know someone else who's picked it up as an adult and wants to give it a try, like, yeah, give them an opportunity and let them come along with you. The other part of that is there, I've definitely been on hunts with people that I would not have been super happy had they been the people teaching me how to hunt. Yeah. Just some of how they operate, you know, gun safety, things like that. Yeah. Maybe even like playing a little loose with some of the regulations. Yeah. Just, you know, as a group, we need to be better about, okay, if, why doesn't this person trust whoever is willing to take them hunting? Is it they don't have their act together? Is it they just, you know, something about them? And, you know, there's a lot going on here where everyone gets something different out of this. Yep. And you you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about this, you know, is it mentorship? Is it things like that? Yeah. We're trying to get information out there so people can learn on, by themselves, but it's way easier to have someone else that kind of knows what they're doing already. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, it's not even so much about mentorship as it is just... How do we get a group together where even if we don't know exactly what we're doing, you know, two or three of us can figure it out? Yeah. Do you think that's in just providing information and making the information available or? I mean, that's part of it. I think part of it is also just getting out and Trying. exploring, like getting out and scouting, confidence issues maybe, like they're hunting and picking a unit and picking where to go once you have a unit is something where there are tons and tons of choices. Yeah. And I think that it's just overwhelming for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I was trying huh. to figure out where I wanted to go in Oregon this last year and having zero background on kind of what the units are and everything. It was a pretty daunting task to just try to get the first steps of, okay, I'm not drawing one of the good tags. Where can I go for a general tag? Yeah. And then try to fit huh. that in with like, I'm traveling four different weekends. And so that screws up some of the seasons. So what's, what is available for the one weekend that I'm in town that there is a season there that's a general unit. And it's, I mean, there's a lot out there yeah. and it can be intimidating for do, people. Do you think the complexity of how Western states have to manage when there are lower population densities of animals, say compared to the Midwest where there's, where they measure white-tailed deer in number per square mile instead of square miles per deer, that that complexity yeah, I mean, is hard for people? There Again, there's a lot to it. Um, States out west are big. There's a lot of spaces to go to. But also if you're going to devote a few hours of travel to get to wherever your spot is, 
Um, even where I was looking at going in Oregon was a three or four hour drive away, yeah. which is something that I could feasibly do on a weekend, but it's also not something where I'd want to go out there and realize that I made a really stupid mistake, yeah. you know, the weekend before season opened or something. Yeah. And it's, I mean, just the amount of information that's out there is just a lot to sort through. Yeah. Um, do, do you think that just basic wood skills, camping skills, survival, comfort, being out in the woods, do you think that's a hurdle for people? Uh, at, for some people, I'm sure it is. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many that is. Okay. Um, at least from what I've seen, a lot of the people who take on hunting as an adult tend to have some level of outdoor enthusiasm. And so they're at least comfortable out doing a, a hike of a few miles on a day, mm-hmm. even if they're not comfortable in severe survival situations or, you know, dealing with grizzly bears or something like most of the time they have some baseline skills that can transfer very well. Okay. And so I think that there's just so much out there and the, um, the people who do this tend to not take newcomers in as readily as you would hope. (laughs) That is for sure. And and it gets back to the discussion we were having earlier about people, when we show up, they're afraid we're going to mess up their spot that took them 10 years to figure out. Now, is it reasonable to expect that the 10 years it took them to figure it out that they're going to find some new hunter and say, yeah, come along? Some will, but... I'd say that's in the minority of people who would say, yeah, right. come and along. It's a, I mean, it's not a requirement. It's, I wouldn't even say it's a duty for anyone to do that. Yeah. But I think that giving back to people who are just starting out or trying to figure out their way yeah. um, is a good way to just make sure that this is going. So yeah. personally, I've come across two or three of my coworkers that all transplanted to Oregon from somewhere else and had history hunting in various places across the U.S. Um, One of them, I think, is from Wisconsin and the Mm -hmm. other is um, from Colorado and then another's from Texas, I think. So Uh there are a number of them out there where we're going to try to see if we can just get a group together and tackle this as a team, figure out where to go, do some scouting, figure out what are we chasing and kind of what the strategy should be for it. And it's varying levels of people that do it every year to people who haven't done it in five years, but really enjoyed it when they were doing it. And so it'll, it'll be an experience to figure out how that actually works. Yeah. So is that your answer to this question? What was the question again? (laughs) The The question was... Uh, or the observation of I I want to go with people, but the people I want to go with don't want to don't want to take a new person, or the people that do want to take a new person, I don't really trust their behaviors or their how they yeah conduct I, themselves. I think there are two main answers to this for me. The first is keep trying to see if somebody will take you along that you trust and that you'd be comfortable with going with. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's something where 
You just have to show them that you would be a help, that you're dedicated, that you're not going to show up out of shape, you know, things like that where they've, you know, your friend might put a bunch of time into this and they just want to make sure that you're going to be a contributor to it instead of dead weight. Yeah. The other part is just going out and doing it. Right. And so even if you don't know exactly what you're doing, um, especially if you have a general tag where there's not a whole lot to be lost if you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. just kind of go out there, like just find somewhere that you can reasonably travel to, that you can spend a fair amount of time out in the field and just go and explore and see what happens. And a lot of what will come out of that is you will learn what's out there. Yeah. You might be successful, you might not, but even if you have a, a year or two under your belt of saying, oh yeah, I went out to this unit and explored and saw a couple but never got a shot, that might be enough to get one of the more experienced people to say, oh yeah, come with us and yeah. you know, we've got this spot that me and three of my buddies go to and come, yeah. come tag along with us. Yeah. Well, I, I think there is part of the, the culture in the hunting world has been one that the, it's a legacy thing often within families and communities. There's also the uh, prove that you're committed kind of idea. You know, are, are you going to work at this or are you just showing up and going to be the the hanger honor kind of, uh, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained kind of thing. And I, at least for the crowds that I hang out with, one thing I would throw in there is if you're a new person listening and trying to find a group of people to go with or a person to go with, make sure they understand and hold yourself to this belief that if someone shows me a spot, I don't go there without them. I, I would say that has burned more hunting relationships. Uh, and, and don't bring a bunch of your friends there. Well, yeah, whatever you do, <laughs> don't. If someone shows you a spot, you need to understand that they have probably put, like you were saying, Matthew, years and years of time in learning this. And for them to share that with you is not something you should take lightly. So at least have the respect and appreciation that you're not going to go back there without them. Go find, you know, you look around and say, oh, this is kind of what, yeah, the, okay. I learned what what I should, the kind of places I should be looking for, the, the habitats, the whatever. Go find your own spots based on what maybe what you learned there. Don't, and yeah, do not show up with three of your other buddies. Mm-hmm. That, uh, Boy, that's that's like serious bad juju there. Yep. So yeah, and definitely show up prepared, like be in shape, have yeah. have your licenses. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, help with camp or setup or breakdown or driving or right. whatever it is that you can do to pitch in. I know some of the newer people may not have all the gear, right? And that's okay, that's but. There are ways that you can still contribute even without yeah. bringing your Orion cooler with you or you yeah. know, whatever like that. Yeah. I mean, not everybody's going to be fully geared out right out of the chute. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So if you know somebody, don't uh, hesitate to take them to your number five spot to at <laughs> least get them 
moving along down this path because it's an investment we all benefit from over time. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we're going to shift a little bit here. Okay. Uh, it sounds like you've been getting a little bit of flack over some of the Second Amendment yeah. and gun control type stuff. Yeah. Take yeah. a second to just give a really brief that, overview on what that stems from and yeah. take some time to address it. Yeah, to say gun control, Second Amendment, all that, and use the term brief is that's like the, those don't equate. So, no, I, I'm not sure what the deal is that some people are like, oh, you, you people with popular platforms, you're just, you know, whatever you sold out, you're fine, what, you know, whatever people want to say is. But I get a lot of people asking me, well, what's your position on the Second Amendment? What's your position on guns? It's the same it's been all my life. I've been a, a gun owner since I think I got my first twenty two long rifle bolt action when I was eight. So I've been a gun owner for 46 years. Uh, I'm at, I can't remember if it's endowment or benefactor life member of the NRA. Uh, and none of that really matters. What really matters is what's my thought on the Second Amendment. Uh, and it's pretty plain and simple for me that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. There's no ambiguity to that. And I say that about all of our constitutional rights, all of our amendments that are the first 10 in the Bill of Rights and even the ones thereafter. I don't see any ambiguity about people having the right to freedom of speech. I don't see any ambiguity to a free press, any ambiguity to not being subjected to unreasonable search. Uh, the Fifth Amendment, the, the right to protect your property and protections given to you for your property. I, I don't understand where the, the fuzz, the, the fogginess comes in those. So the, in case anyone is wondering, uh, I, I did, someone asked me this uh, a while, but uh, probably three or four years ago. And when I did an inventory, I had over 30 firearms in the house and I just did a quick estimate between shotgun and rifle I had over 5,000 rounds of ammunition and now I'm uh, I uh, <laughs> I'm well beyond 30 uh, at the house but uh, and, and I posted something I think part of what's driving this Matthew is I posted something on Facebook last summer uh, about uh my great-grandfather, which would be your great-great-grandfather, came here from Finland. And I, uh, uh, he, he had to come here because he, he and his brother were about to be conscripted into the Russian army uh, in 1913. There was the, I think it was the second Russification of Finland. Uh, and so he came to the United States and uh, I observed that in a lot of his photographs, there were always firearms on the wall. And so I asked his oldest daughter, my grandma, Grandma, why, why are there always guns in these pictures? And she explained to me that when her dad came to America, he couldn't believe that he was allowed to, to own firearms without any constraint or restriction. And 
as the story was told to me, is he vowed he would never again be peaceably disarmed. Uh, and I've, I've kept that as my philosophy and my approach is I will never be peaceably disarmed. Uh, I'm not going to be like my great-grandfather who had to leave his home country because he was disarmed. Um, and uh, I, that's when some of these emails started coming in. I'm like, Where's, where does anyone get the idea that there's any ambiguity to this? I, uh, you know, and then on the other side, I get the people who are like, I can't believe that you believe folks should be able to own whatever it is. Insert here. <laughs> Why not? You know, I, these are inanimate objects that don't climb out of my safe and start committing violent crimes. And I've also expressed my frustration of the notion of gun control and why I think it's a complete bailout. So this is where Randy's going to get a little unfiltered here. So if you don't want to hear Randy's opinions about the folly, stupidity, laziness of the notion of gun control, you might want to skip forward because gun control is a cop-out. It's a cop-out that we don't want to address the things that cause violent crime. And this has nothing to do with hunting, but since the question has been asked, Matthew, you've cued me up here. Someone tell me how passing a, some regulation about, I don't care if it's magazine capacity, about, uh, you name it. What does that do to address the core roots, the, the actual causes of violence? whether it's mental health, whether it's lack of education, whether it's lack of opportunity, absolute poverty, a drug culture, whatever it might be. Gun control, placing some sort of arbitrary constraint on a tightening window and wall on people's ability to own inanimate objects, somehow that addresses those social issues that are at the true core of violent crime. To me, that's because you're lazy. You don't want to take on the really hard topics that have been building for a century or maybe even longer. And it's taken forever to get into these situations where violence is part of our culture. You know, Matthew, I refuse to watch shows like Die Hard and all this shoot 'em up, bang, bang stuff. I refuse to watch shows that, unless it's a historical context, I will not pay money to watch a show where people are using firearms in a violent way that they're not intended. You ask me any of the popular action movies, I've never watched any of them. It's that kind of mindset and that kind of culture or, or belief that I don't agree with, and that's just my personal bias. And I don't believe that you're going to solve poverty, that you're going to solve all these things, help with mental health, the whole works of what we all know are great big problems that all are contributors to crime. You're not going to solve any of that by telling me how many bullets I can have in my magazine. That's, I don't know. I probably just lost half my audience there, but I don't really give a, give a crank because it's, it's, it's just, it's, for me, it's, it's just stupid to waste our time talking about those kind of things 
when it's very obvious what the big issues are if we want to address crime, because crime's always used as the reason to impose tighter and tighter control on owning firearms. It's out, crime is always what's stated, okay? If it's crime that is the expression of our fear or our problem or our worry, let's address what causes the crime, not the inanimate objects that are used in the crime. So maybe I'm too much of an absolutist on the Second Amendment, but I don't think you can be too much of an absolutist on your constitutional rights. So cool. That. All right. Is well, that, uh, is that, can we calm down now? I, yeah. Because we, I, I'm about ready to really go off the rails when we get in. You've heard me when we're, when it's not being recorded. Uh, you've heard me at times driving down the road or in the living room when it comes on the TV. You've heard me go, go completely off the rails on those topics. But uh, well. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is going to calm you down any. It might. <laughs> uh, so there's some land in Utah, I think, that you talked about in the last podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to give a quick update on that? Yeah. It sounds like something yeah. came out in the Salt Lake City Tribune. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, this will calm me down. So last podcast, I told everybody, look, Utah State Land Board is selling 28,000 acres. They've got it listed as another auction for $41 million. And I think... Monday is the last day, December 31st is the last day to get your bid or your package in. Obviously, it raised some awareness because I got an email from Utah Division of Wildlife Resources saying, hey, 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 you know, we're hoping that we can buy this. I said, oh, great. I hope you do end up with it. Uh, does that? It didn't say that in any of the public information. Uh, does, does that mean you're the only one bidding or, and they didn't really answer that. They just said, well, we're trying to, to make it possible so that we can buy it. So out of full disclosure, I felt it was worthwhile to provide that update that in, from what I gather, any bidder could still end up with it who wants to be the highest bidder, but Utah DWR Division of Wildlife Resources is trying to put together some sort of proposal where they could end up acquiring it. So, And what would that do for the land? Like, what is the status of it right now? And yep. then what does that mean for right. anyone that wanted to right. go hunt on it? Right. So right now, it is state trust land, which Utah is one of the states where their state agency has a deal. I believe their Division of Wildlife Resources pays their state trust land board, which is... So state land boards in the West manage the lands for the schools. So they got to get the greatest possible return on those lands to fund the school systems. I believe in Utah, like in New Mexico, like in a lot of the Western states, they have an arrangement where they are paying a across the board trespass fee, whatever your access fee, whatever you want to call it to the state land board. DWR pays the state land board. So right now it is open to hunting if you can legally access it. So DWR, if they buy it, they want to make it into a wildlife management area. So it will have a priority given to wildlife. Now, if they're not the winning bidder and it goes into private hands, the odds are it's not going to be open to public access. So does that Yeah. So basically purchasing it would 
be more beneficial, most likely, than having it go to private hands, which right. Uh, in, history shows that they often cut it out too. Uh, history shows that when people pay at a minimum, the, the reserve on this is $41 million. History shows that when people pay $41 million for a 28,000-acre premium wildlife property, they don't open it up to the public and say, y'all, come on in here. So, yeah. <laughs> not saying it couldn't happen, but <laughs> it's, it's not the norm. So... All right, uh, let's do one last one before we wrap it up here. So let's talk about corner crossing. Oh, man, this could take two hours. Yeah, well, again, what's the, the short version? What are some of the, what's some of the history? What are some of the main points people need to know? And then is there any recent news about it? Yeah, so the only reason there's recent news is every year when the Western states start their applications like Wyoming starts in January, followed by Arizona, by Utah, by Montana. The topic always comes up, can I corner cross? And for those of you not familiar, think of a checkerboard, right? And you've got black, red, black, red, black, red. And they can, the, the reds connect at the corners and the blacks connect at the corners. So uh, the idea is if the black represents public land, could I step from one black over the corner to another black so that when I step over, I'm stepping where two red corners and two black corners meet, but I've stayed on black in my stepping over this corner. That's why they call it corner crossing. You cross at this infinite little spot where the corners all meet. And in doing so, the idea is you could hunt some of the checkerboard stuff. Uh, in Montana, I believe it was the 2015 legislative session, a Republican from Billings and a Democrat from Missoula got together and they co-sponsored a bill about corner crossing. And so this is really hard to explain quickly, Matthew. So you need to understand that the whole worry about corner crossing is Am I trespassing and violate when I if I trespass, am I committing a crime because our criminal statutes defines trespass in one way? And if I trespass, am I creating property damage because our civil statutes, our civil law identifies trespass as something different than what the criminal statutes will say. So the Montana bill was that, Okay, we're going to make it law that in Montana, crossing at the corners would not be considered criminal trespass. Whatever happens in civil court, that's up to you and whoever the landowner is. If they want to take you to court for stepping over their corner, that's up to them. So that's, that would be a civil case. But what it was going to say is that the criminal case, i.e. the sheriff, the police, the game wardens, not going to come and give you a citation for crossing at a corner. That was what the Montana bill would have done, is define that doing this, stepping over at the corner, would not be considered criminal trespass. And I can't overemphasize the difference between criminal trespass and civil trespass. The Montana law that was proposed would not affect civil trespass. So, and I'm going to Gideon, uh, I'll give a quick history of what happened and then I'm going to get into why there's a difference. 
So the bill comes to the committee that this Republican and this Democrat sit on, and they at both sides, hey, you hunters, you better show up there. So all of us show up in Helena. We go to the Capitol. We're there. We testify. Yeah, hey, we didn't even see it coming. This was not a bill requested by hunters. We just said, you know what? Let the sleeping dog lie. We don't want to piss off a bunch of landowners. The bill pops up out of nowhere, and we're told, you better get up there. So we all show up. And the Republican co-sponsor votes against his own bill in the committee, so it dies in committee. That's what created the whole shit storm with corner crossing in the Montana legislature in 2015. A lot of people want to make it out that the hunters did this. We, we saw it on the docket. We're like, who, who introduced that bill? Where'd that come from? Well, where it came from is this Democrat from Missoula and this Republican from Billings said, let's co-sponsor this. Well, then the Republican from Billings got taken to the woodshed by somebody and he voted against his own bill in his own committee. And that was the vote that caused it to fail in committee. And that's what created the big storm in Montana. So during this whole period, I went and hired a law firm, a law firm that specializes in this kind of stuff and said, I want the skinny on corner crossing. And man, was it a worthwhile fee to pay their fees to explain and give me the paper, their kind of their opinions on this. And so last summer I had them lined up to be on the podcast. I, and I'm going to try to do that this off season. I'm going to call over there and say, Hey guys, I will pay your hourly rate for you guys to sit on the podcast and explain the difference between criminal law and civil law and how that relates to this corner crossing issue. So it, the, the answer to anyone's question is that it depends. So most people are concerned about the criminal side of it. So what does each state's law say related to stepping over at the corners? Is it a crime or is it not a crime? If it is a crime, what level of crime is it? Well, Wyoming and some of the counties... The judges have just kind of thrown it out and said, get out of here. It's not a crime. So some of the district attorneys won't even take it. If the sheriff comes out and gives you a ticket for corner crossing, the district attorney says, no, I'm not uh, the county attorney. I'm, I'm not even going to prosecute that. But that's only in some counties. No, in so it varies, like the law varies state to state, but then even within, even within the states, it depends on that. what the district is, who's prosecuting, kind of right. what the history is. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, don't, uh, and I read about it, every hunting forum that is, has Western topics discussed, you'll get some expert opinions, expert in quotation marks about, oh, what you can do or can't do. No. You better, before you decide to do that, I suggest you go and hire an attorney. Disclaimer, we are not lawyers. Do not take any legal advice from us. Right. My <laughs> answer is go ask an attorney and pay that attorney a fee so you've established that they've provided you advice. So if it's bad advice, you <laughs> you might be able to, to have some recourse. But so the very first thing and what most hunters are focused on is the criminal side. I don't want to get a citation. A citation for trespassing is not a good thing. 
never get a citation for trespassing. I defy, I always kind of defer to the side of extreme caution. I, if it's even fuzzy or close to that, when it comes to private property rights, I'm not going there. So then the, the criminal code, the, the, the criminal statute discussion being one thing, then there's this civil idea, this, this idea of I've committed a tort. I've, I've damaged this person's property. And so the question becomes, is it trespass? By, by the definition of trespass, is it trespass if I take a shortcut across my neighbor's yard? Technically. That's technically trespass. Our neighbor, what do they do? They drive through the corner of our spare lot to get to their, their property, right? Technically, that's trespass. The property we own in Minnesota, there's a trail that comes down along the river. People walk across all the time to get to that one fishing hole. Technically, that's trespass. I could, as the property owner, say, you have trespassed on my property. I'm going to take you to court and I'm going to sue you. And the odds are the court is going to say, yep, yeah, you've been trespassed upon, Randy. Here's your damage. It's zero. Why the hell are you wasting my time to file a claim in a civil matter when you knew the damage was zero? That didn't hurt the corner of your yard when your neighbor walked across there. It didn't hurt your piece of river frontage when someone walks down to that rock there. So it, the, the whole civil side of it is another can of worms. Would, by crossing at the corners, would, would it be determined that you have damaged that person's property? Uh, I'm not going to provide an opinion there. <laughs> but I've given some examples that are pretty similar. You know, uh, what, what have you damaged their property? I don't know. So there's two issues related to corner crossing, civil trespass, criminal trespass. And you need to understand that difference and know where your comfort level is in either or none of them. So makes sense. Um, anything else before we wrap it up here? Um, I, I, I want to leave this corner crossing thing with the disclaimer that I don't do it. I'll probably never do it because even if it's not considered criminal, I feel that it is considered civil trespass. But from all the opinions I've received from attorneys, and I ask a lot of attorneys, and pretty much all of them come to the conclusion, it is civil trespass by definition of what civil trespass would be. And even though the damage is zero, I'm still not going to do it. So I don't corner cross. I, I don't, I've got enough other places to go that I don't need to corner cross. Um, I, I, I think it's a big can of worms that we in the hunting community better really think it through before we start pushing the issue of we want to corner cross. And I know I'm going to get lit up for that. I I'm, can see it right now. People are like, I'm going to email that SOB. I can't believe he's bailing out on corner crossing. It's not that I'm bailing out. What I'm saying is that Fifth Amendment says that person's private property 
has rights. And me stepping over those corners, as much as I may not like it, by the definition of that, I am creating. All the attorneys tell me this. I'm not saying I'm that this is Randy Newberg's opinion. This is a, opinions I get from paying attorneys. It's a consolidated opinion of opinions. Right. What they have told me is that represents civil trespass. Well, I don't want to engage in an activity that's going to create civil trespass because my personal ethos is that is infringing on their Fifth Amendment right. I know other people might feel differently about it and say, you know what? Yeah, it is, but that's no different than when the neighbor comes in my yard to retrieve the football that he threw over the fence. Okay, whatever. So hopefully that gives people some understanding of why I don't do it. I'm not judging people who have a different perspective on it, but one thing I am going to do, I'm going to call those guys over there. I I keep pointing because they're just not too far down the road from me here, about a mile and a half away. The law firm here in Bozeman that does a lot of this stuff and understands it really well. They're hunters. Uh, I, I think it'd be worthwhile to the hunting audience for some podcast, some platform like ours to bring experts on who their job, their daily life is immersed in this rather than all of us giving these opinions on podcasts and on web forums and other stuff because it's a really, really big issue. And if hunters want to go down that path, they better start weighing the consequences, the pluses and the minuses because I can assure you the detriments are going to be extremely heavy to maybe act. We might... What access we might gain by being able to corner cross, we might lose in the form of a whole bunch of other public access programs that are there with private landowners could go by the wayside. It's nothing. None of a this bunch of goodwill that right. we've cultivated over the last few decades. Right. None of this would happen in a vacuum. Let's put it that way. And uh, so I could go on and on and on, but. I probably ought not to. So, all right. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. Really? Any any parting words? <laughs> uh, Happy New Year, everybody! Um, sorry that we're late with this podcast. Um, I don't know. You got any parting words? No, no. We're nothing from my end. No. Uh, I guess my parting word was would be don't miss the Wyoming deadline on January 31st. Go to Go Hunt, sign up for the Insider, use promo code Randy and get $50 of free store credit. And then after Wyoming, don't miss Arizona. Their deadline is going to be sometime in February. I they just down they just posted the regulations yesterday for Arizona. I haven't had a chance to download them, but the deadlines are in there. Uh, and then in March, don't miss Montana's March fifteenth deadline and whatever the Utah deadline is. Those Arizona, Wyoming, and Utah all posted their two thousand nineteen non resident application booklets this week. So they're out on their websites. Go download them and go hunting. What are you going to do with your 16 Utah elk points this year? I don't know. Contribute to point creep, I think. Really? You're I don't know. We'll your, see. Your calendar that busy? 
Uh, I just don't know yet. I need to take a look and sit down and figure it out. You're, you're just leaving your calendar open for that non-resident Montana sheep tag this year? Yeah, sure. We'll go with that. <laughs> well, you couldn't, you didn't draw it for the, what, 15 or 16 years you applied as a resident, so you're going to draw it your second or third year as a non, or yeah. whatever, as a non-resident? Well, I got the moose tag my last year as being a resident, so that was just, why, why not the goat or sheep tag? Too? That was so flat out lucky, Matthew. You will never replicate that ever again. So, but anyhow, folks, we sure appreciate you listening. Thanks for all your support. Uh, really, we do hope you have a wonderful new year. I hope in 2019 your mailbox is stuffed with so many tags you can't even get the lid closed on your mailbox. So, thanks a lot. Take care.